Today we are going to begin a brand new sermon series entitled Difficult Questions, Biblical Answers. Over the next several weeks we'll be looking at questions that are being asked not only by Christians but I think all of people of all realms of life. Other religions like Muslims, Buddhists, humanists, atheists, agnostics. But we are going to especially focus in on those questions that are being asked in light of what seems to be our ever-changing moral culture and worldview. Because the theme for all of our sermons this year is a biblical worldview, we're going to answer each of these difficult questions with biblical answers. And the first question that we're going to answer is a very simple one, yet also a very controversial one today. The question is, how did we get here? And while I'm sure that there has been and are still many answers to this question, there are two beliefs or answers that get the most attention. And they can be summarized by the terms creation and evolution. The controversy over the answer to this question of how do we get here really became an issue about 150 years ago. It was 1859 when Charles Darwin published his book, The Origin of Species. And even much more so in the last 40 years as more and more people, especially those in the educational establishment, have accepted and taught as fact Darwin's theory of evolution. Now maybe you've heard this. This kind of puts it into a nutshell. Maybe you've heard the joke about the gorilla who's in the zoo and he has a Bible in one hand and he has Darwin's origin of the species in the other hand. He looks back and forth between the two and he looks confused. Someone says to him, what are you doing? And the griller answered, well, I'm trying to decide if I'm my brother's keeper or I'm my keeper's brother. Well, that's kind of what the th theory of evolution is all about. And when we think about that today, there's just a lot of confusion going on. And one of the reasons is because it's been accepted as fact. I mean, anytime you see something happens that's new, some new discovery about a fossil, the first thing you read is this new fossil is so many millions of years old. And so it can be rather confusing. Yet I appreciate the fact that there is all kinds of information available today to study on this. Uh, my head is swimming from all the things that I read this week as I tried to review all, all the things. In fact, I have about eight books back there in my office that I purchased about two or three years ago for the church. So if you would like to read any of those eight books, you're welcome to them. I got them all from Answers in Genesis when they were down at North Terrace here a couple of years ago. So uh, you're avail you're, they're available for you to have. All you have to do is come see me and, and check them out. And as long as you bring them back, you're uh, allowed to have any one of those if you would like. I also appreciate uh, many preachers who have uh, taught and preached about this subject. Two in particular that I really enjoyed reading about this week were Michael Luke and Todd Riley. And they were two preachers that I gleaned a lot from as I was preparing uh, for this message today. But here's where I believe we are in our world today as far as creation versus evolution is concerned. We're being bombarded more and more on a daily basis with the philosophy that evolution is the only credible explanation for the existence of the universe and all the life forms that are in it. Howard Hendricks once said, in the midst of of a generation screaming for answers, Christians are stuttering. And on this particular subject, I don't think we should be stuttering. We should be very clear about what we believe to the point that we can share it with others. 
And so this morning, let's clarify the basic differences between evolution and the biblical explanation of creation and strengthen ourselves to give a clear answer to those who doubt our stance. And then tonight, because I had so much information, I couldn't get it all in today, I'm going to do a follow-up to this message tonight. We're going to talk about the same subject tonight. And that message is entitled, How God Proves His Existence. How God Proves His Existence. That's going to be tonight. Richard's read a few verses from the end of Genesis 1. I want to begin today by reading one verse that you're all familiar with. It's not going to be up on your screen because it's going to come up a little bit later. And if you notice in your outline today, you have no fill in the blanks. I just wanted you to sit back, relax, and follow along this morning. But the verse that I believe we all know that I want to start with, the very first verse of the Bible says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful that you are our creator. That's one of the powers that you have. And, and you have created this world in which we live. You have created each one of us as we are here today. And we thank you for that. And Father, we just thank you for Jesus. In whose name we come to you in prayer today. In whose name and whose power we have the opportunity to be saved. And Father, it's our joy to be able to come today in freedom and to be able to proclaim the truth of your word. As always, Father, I need your help today to present this message in a way that will be first pleasing to you, and my prayer is it will be helpful, challenging, and encouraging to all of us as we talk about creation versus evolution for a few minutes today. Father, I would just ask that you would bless our time together. I would ask that you would bless your word as we study its truth, and thank you that your word teaches us how we got here. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What I want to do this morning is to take a few minutes to, first of all, summarize what the positions or teachings of evolution are. And this is a very quick summary. And then identify some problems with the positions. Secondly, we're going to consider the biblical teaching of creation from the book of Genesis. And then third, come to some conclusions that I hope that you already have. But these are conclusions that will help you to become more solidified in your faith and able to discuss this with others who may be influenced by evolutionary theory. So first, let's talk about examining evolution, some positions and problems. Evolution has been in recent years the most prominently taught explanation for the universe as it exists. At least that's the case in our schools, our colleges, and our universities. Lee Strobel, who was one time an atheist, and he set out to disprove that there was a God, he became a Christian. And he wrote this. He said, in the popular culture, the case for evolution is generally considered shut. In other words, most people have accepted it as fact. Time magazine said in a recap of the second millennium in an article dated December 31st, 1999, in their year-end issue under the title iconoclast of the century Charles Darwin they wrote this Darwinism or evolution remains one of the most successful scientific theories ever promulgated that's what Time Magazine said evolution today is taught in schools not as theory but often as fact it's reinforced in museums reinforced in zoos even reinforced in some children's cartoons Bob Russell has said evolution has been repeated so often 
that to challenge it is the equivalent to believing in a flat earth or a moon made of cheese. So what are some of the basic positions or teachings of this theory called evolution? Well, we're going to talk about two very briefly. First position is this. Evolution says that life was formed through what they call spontaneous generation. Now all that means is that which was non-living on its own became living. That's what evolution teaches. By chance, the world and all of its life forms came into existence. Evolution states that everything that you see around us here today is a result of random mutations. One time there was gas and that gas formed a planet. One time there was water. That water formed organic material. At one time there was a single-celled amoeba, as we would call it today, in the ocean. And after billions of years, that single cell eventually became man. So that's how you got here, from a single cell. Now evolutionists can go into great detail in describing the process of how life forms evolve but they really have no scientific explanation for how matter came to be. So the question is, where did this so-called single cell from which all of life supposedly got its start, where did it come from? And this brings us to the problem. The problem in evolution is that spontaneous generation is an impossibility. Life does not just happen spontaneously. Evolutionists cannot account for the original matter that is necessary for their process to begin. They can't account for it. Lee Strobel once again observes, he says, The origin of life is the Achilles heel of evolution. Dr. Walter Bradley, who is a retired professor of mechanical engineering at Texas A&M, draws an analogy to the Darwinian theory of how Time and chance and energy all came together and they formed all these complicated biochemical and mechanical systems. This is what he says. It's sort of like a printer taking letters out of a basket and setting type the way they used to do it by hand. Now, if you guide that printer by the use of intelligence, it's no problem. But if you just choose letters at random and you put them together haphazardly, and you throw them all in there upside down and backwards. He asked, what are the chances that you're going to come up with words, sentences, and paragraphs that would make sense? He said, it is impossible. That's what evolution says. As one preacher put it, the probability of life originating from accident is comparable to the unabridged dictionary resulting from an explosion in a printing factory. So the first problem with evolution is that the theory cannot account for the original matter that is necessary for the process to begin. Now here's the second teaching or position of evolution. Life develops, now they'll use the term evolves, through something called mutation. All that is is changes that occur over millions of years. Life also evolves through what's called natural selection. Maybe you've heard the phrase survival of the fittest. You've heard that before. In other words, if life forms can't adapt to the environment around them, they become extinct. Those that can adapt, those that survive the fittest, 
then they're able to continue to go on. The other thing is, things move from chaos to order. That's what evolutionists teach. From lower life forms to higher and more complex life forms. Now, I want to stop here for just a moment. And I'm going to get as scientific as I'm going to get today. And believe me, it's hard for me to get scientific because I hate science. I flunked biology in high school. And I want you to know that. But it is important for us to grasp what evolutionists believe about mutation and changing life forms. So here's the scientific part of this message. Now, I, you follow with me because you'll be able to get this. If I can get it, you can get it. Evolution actually has two divisions. Now, the reason this is important is just because you hear the word evolution, usually we associate that with Darwin's theory, and we know that that's not true. But there are forms of evolution that are true. In other words, there are some changes that take place. And so one form of evolution is called microevolution. And all that is is small changes that have taken place and can take place within a specific species. Now let me use an example. How many breeds of dogs would you say are available today or are out there? How many breeds of dogs? Anyone want to guess? Bunch. There's about 200 according to what I've read. There are 200 different breeds of dogs. Here's another example. Dairy cattle today can be bred for improved milk production. Bacteria can adapt and develop immunity to antibiotics. That's microevolution. And it's true to many extents. There are undeniably variations within the specific species of animals and plants that we have. God did not say that there would not be changes within the family. He did not create all the varieties of dogs, cats, horses, fish in the beginning. At first, there was only male and female of each species. Many changes have since occurred to produce this wide assortment of varieties within the family. But here's the reality. A cat is still a cat. And a dog is still a dog, and men are still men, and women are still women. There's another form of evolution. This is where Darwinists or evolutionists believe. It's called macroevolution. Some call it organic evolution. They claim that life began millions of years ago with simple single-celled creatures brewed in this gooey soup and then developed through mutation and natural selection into this vast array of plant and animal life that populates the planet today. Someone has facetiously referred to this this way. I like this. From goo to you by way of the zoo. <laughs> I, I, like, I thought that was pretty good. Here's what one poet put it this way. He said, once I was a tadpole beginning to begin... Then I was a frog with my tail tucked in. Then I was a monkey in a banyan tree. Now I am a professor with a Ph.D. <laughs> well, that's what evolutionists say happened, okay? That's what they believe. Now, here's the problem with this position or teaching. Actually, there's two problems. First one is this. There's something called the second law of thermodynamics. I told you I wasn't going to get scientific, but it's not really that hard to understand. All that says is that in any system, energy moves from order to disorder. And life forms will eventually begin to decay. 
Some of you know what that means when you look at your physical bodies. They will eventually begin to decay. Now, this scientific law that is accepted by the great majority of scientists says that while energy can never be destroyed, it becomes less available for further work as it unravels. In other words, our universe is wound up like a clock that is slowly running down. Everything tends to run down and eventually wear out. Even our sun, scientists admit, will eventually burn out. Let me put it this way. A plot of weeds left alone will never become a golf course. But a golf course left alone will eventually become a plot of weeds. Things tend to break down into the less complicated rather than increase in complexity, which is what evolutionists say. So evolution says things go from disorder to order. They say things are moving up. They say things are getting better from disorganization towards organization. That time itself performs this miracle where the second law of thermodynamics says this is impossible. Here's the second problem. There is no fossil evidence for the transitions that they say take place between various species of animals. In other words, we have no half-man, half-bird skeletons. There's none that exist. Now, if evolution has been happening over millions of years, where are the half-bird, half-men? Since Darwin's day, our knowledge of the fossil record has grown enormously. The number of fossils is huge, but scientists have to admit that there are no examples of evolutionary transition between one species to another, and that's what the Bible teaches. Even Darwin himself, this is one of the most amazing things that I read this week, Darwin himself confessed in his writings, Life and Letters, Volume 3, page 25, and I quote, Charles Darwin said this, there are two or three million species on earth, a sufficient field, one might think, for observation. But it must be said today that in spite of all the evidence of trained observers, not one change of the species to another is on record. That's what Charles Darwin said, even though he believed exactly the opposite of that. So to believe in evolution is to believe that the frog really does turn into the prince. The evolutionists seem to know everything about the missing link except the fact that it is missing. There is not a missing link when it comes to evolution. The whole chain is not there. Well, we have spent a few minutes discussing evolution. Now I want to take a few minutes to begin considering creation. What does the Bible say? Now, unfortunately, many people, even some who claim to be Christians... Ignore the book of Genesis. And I suppose maybe it's because we live in a culture that mocks anyone who believes in the Bible's account of creation or believes in the great flood. Christians are regarded as stupid if they hold to the Bible's testimony regarding our origins. But I want to encourage you because what we need to make sure that we believe is that Genesis 1 and the chapters that follow are intended to be read literally. It's not to be read as some fable. It's not to be read as a myth. It is to be read in a literal fashion because it is to be considered history and not poetry. A lot of people believe many books of the Bible are simply poetry or symbolic. 
But what we read is actually what happened. The universe and all that was in it was created in six literal days by the all-powerful God whom we have the privilege of serving and knowing. Numerous times throughout the scriptures, the act of God's creating the universe is referred to. Jesus, as well as other writers in both the Old and New Testaments, refer to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and the Great Flood as real people and as real events. So this is what the Bible teaches about creation. Let me put it very quickly into one sentence. God created, meaning made out of nothing, our universe, the heavens and the earth, as well as all life forms, including humans. Our world and our lives are not the results of random chance, but of a loving creator. Back to that very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. In the Genesis account, we find all the factors necessary for creation. Science, in fact, informs us that there are five forces necessary for creating things. Five forces. They say that those forces are time, energy, force, space, and matter. All five of those components are found in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, time, God, the energy, created, the force, the heavens, which is the space, and the earth, which is the matter. All five found in the very first verse of the Bible. Now, I also want you to note this. There in Genesis 1, the Bible says God created. Interesting word there in the Hebrew. The word is bara, B-A-R-A. It means made out of nothing. Now, it's interesting to me to note that each time this Hebrew word is used in the Old Testament, and by the way, it's used three times in Genesis 1, it is used only as a reference to divine activity. It is never used in referring to human activity. Now, that makes perfect sense to me because as humans, we cannot make something out of nothing. We can't do that. But God can do that. There are two other words in the Hebrew that is sometimes translated form, fashion, or make, and they refer to a fashioning or a creating of something from material that already exists. All right? Now, here's the interesting thing. That word is used about God. In Genesis 1, verse 16, the Bible says God made, that's the other word, the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. What's he talking about there? Sun and moon, right? And he made, the word's not created, made the stars also. In other words, the word Moses used there was that he made the sun, the moon, and the stars from something already in existence. Is that true? Yes, because what does it say back in verse 3? God created light. Light was already here. He used that light then to fashion the sun, the moon, and the stars. And so that's why Moses used that word. Isn't that great how the Bible works, how it fits together? God created out of nothing, and then he took what he created, and he formed everything else. Well, that's what the Bible says, and that's what we believe. So the point is this, before our universe existed, there was nothing but God. And at his very word, this whole universe came into existence. 
The plants, the animals, and all human beings were created by a supernatural act, not by some big bang, but by a very big God. And I love how the Bible refers to the creation of man. That's what Richard read, Genesis 1, 26 and 7. The Bible says, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, speaking of the Godhead. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. In other words, man was created to rule over the rest of the creation that God had made. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. You didn't come from a monkey, you came from God. So the result then of God's work is found in verse 31, which says, God saw all that he had made, and behold... It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Genesis 1 sets the record straight. God, the all-powerful creator, spoke and we became. Millions of years were not necessary. And it makes, to me, a lot more sense to believe in an all-powerful God creating us in the universe than it does to believe in the theory of evolution. Here's a second fact about creation. God used six literal 24-hour days in his creation. There was evening and there was morning. That phrase is used six times in Genesis chapter 1 at the end of each day of creation. There was evening and there was morning. So Moses ends the discussion after each of these six literal 24-hour days of creation. Now we're going to discuss this a little bit more tonight because there are people called theistic evolutionists who claimed to still believe in God, but there was big old gaps between those days. Okay? We'll talk about that tonight. But let me just say now, it seems to me that God wanted to make it perfectly clear that the days of creation were in fact literal days. Why else would he end each day saying there was evening and there was morning the first day, the second day, the third day, and so on? Third truth about creation is this. God created all life forms, the Bible says, after their kind. Or some translations say after its kind. The phrase is used ten times in Genesis chapter 1. All that means is there will never be flowers becoming bees. There will never be apes becoming men. One example is found in Genesis 1, 11 and 12. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind, with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. Now that word kind, also used in other verses in Genesis 1, refers to species or families. Each created family was to produce only its own kind. And so this forever precludes this drifting, changing process required by evolution where one species turns into another species. That's what's called macroevolution that we talked about before. All the fossil record available testifies to the truth that God created life after their kind. Well, it's time that we begin coming to a conclusion. As we think about what has been said this morning, I realize that I only scratch the surface when it comes to discussing evolution and creation. But for Christians, 
The matter is, in all honesty, a matter of faith, isn't it? But even for people who aren't Christians, in all honesty, it's still a matter of faith. Because in actuality, evolution is more of a philosophy or a faith issue than it is a scientific issue. Now maybe you're like me. Sometimes I wonder why evolutionists believe in a theory that is so opposed to what God says about creation. Could it be that there are those who just do not want to come to terms with God? Richard Dawkins is one of the most influential evolutionists of our day. He begins his book, The Blind Watchmaker, by stating this, Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. <laughs> Michael Behe is a biochemist at Lehigh University. Now, understand he is a believer in what is known today as intelligent design. This is what he says. The conclusion of intelligent design flows naturally from the data itself, not from sacred books or sectarian beliefs. He goes on to say the reluctance of science to embrace the conclusion of intelligent design has no justifiable foundation. Many people, including many important and well-respected scientists, just don't want there to be anything beyond nature. That's true. One article I read, and I want to share this with you, because I didn't realize this, and I read it this week, it concerned the eruption of Mount St. Helens. How many of you are old enough to remember that? <laughs> That happened in 1980, okay? Mount Helens erupted, 1980. That eruption has done more to disprove the theory of evolution than any event in modern history. Prior to May 18, 1980, Mount St. Helens was a beautiful cone-shaped volcano covered by old-growth trees, 150 to 200 feet tall. In an explosion, the equivalent of 20 million tons of TNT or 1,500 atomic bombs, Mount St. Helen and the surrounding area were changed forever. It continued to spew for 15 hours with the force of 400 million tons of TNT. That's the equivalent of one atom bomb exploding every second for 15 hours straight. Geologists used to believe layers of volcanic rock were set apart by time. Mount St. Helens proved to the world forever that sediment is laid down in multiple layers in a matter of hours. Ash from Mount St. Helens, 550 degrees Fahrenheit, traveled 200 miles per hour down the sides of the mountains, taking with it 150 square miles of timber in a matter of six minutes. Can you comprehend that? I can't. That's what happened. That's what actually happened. Over 20,000 rootless trees were deposited in the lake at the bottom called Spirit Lake. The trees became waterlogged and sank in the upright position. Some rested on top of sediment. Others were buried deeply in multiple layers. Some were buried lying sideways. But they were all deposited there in a matter of a few hours. Now, why is this important? There is a place called Specimen Ridge in Yellowstone National Park that has 27 layers of forest which scientists claimed were deposited over millions of years. In fact, there's a sign that used to be there that said that. 
The 27 layers of trees in Yellowstone look exactly like those deposited at the bottom of Spirit Lake by Mount St. Helens in a matter of hours. Multiple layers of trees with no roots buried in the same kind of sediment now have been shown that they can be laid at once, not over millions of years. God gave us an undeniable proof on May 18th 1980, that vast amounts of time are not necessary to create things as previously were thought. It's clear that God can do in a moment what it takes evolutionary theory billions of years to imagine. Here's the bottom line today, brothers and sisters. Evolution is ultimately idolatry. It's idolatry. It attributes the creative power of God to the force of nature. That's what makes it idolatry. Now, we're going to discuss Romans chapter 1 tonight, but there's another verse that Paul mentions that summarizes, I believe, why people believe in the lie of evolution. Paul was giving one reason here in 2 Thessalonians 2 for those who perish when he said this, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. I came across an article that I believe illustrates what the Apostle Paul is saying here. The article was written back in 1971. It was written by Dr. George Wald who is the former professor emeritus of biology at Harvard University. In 1971, he won the Nobel Prize in biology. Right after that, he wrote an article in a magazine, Scientific America, and I want to quote what he wrote. Dr. George Wald said, There are only two possibilities about how life arose. One is spontaneous generation arising to evolution. That's what we talked about. The other is the supernatural creative act of God. There is no third possibility. Spontaneous generation, the belief that life arose from non-living matter, was scientifically disproved 120 years ago by Louis Pasteur, among others. That leaves us with only one other possible conclusion that life arose as a supernatural creative act of God. Now, it sounds pretty good so far, doesn't it? You know how he closed his article? Let me quote. I will not accept creation philosophy because I do not want to believe in God. Therefore, I choose to believe in that which I know to be scientifically impossible, spontaneous generation. That's how he concluded his article. He won the Nobel Prize for biology. And that's what he said. Now, how's that for science? Evolution is indeed a philosophy. It's a bias. It's the next best guess of a mind that chooses to reject God. One thing that evolution can never explain is how faith in Jesus Christ brings people to a point of transformation that no amount of time, energy, or chance can produce. There was an anthropologist who was an atheist. He went to South America a few years ago to study a primitive tribe that had been reached by Christian missionaries some years earlier. After living with this group of people for several weeks, 
the anthropologist decided he wanted to meet with the tribal chief. They got together one day. The anthropologist said, you have a wonderful culture. But it's a shame that this missionary came and infected your tribe with their religion. The chief looked at him. He smiled. He said, you see that rock over there? Anthropologist said, yes. He says, that's where we would break the skulls of our enemies. He said, you see that tree over there? Anthropologist said, yes. He said, that's where we would sacrifice them to our God. And if we had not learned that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, you would be our dinner tonight. That's what he said to the anthropologist. Hebrews 11 verse 3 says, By faith, by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. They were spoken into existence. So that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. God created out of nothing that which we see today. My question to you is, do you know how we got here? Well, I hope you do. I hope you believe in the biblical account of creation. But here's another important question for you to answer as the praise team comes. There's one more question I want to challenge you with today. You may know how you got here, but do you know where you will end up? Do you know where you will end up? The Bible says that God created everything that we see. He created you and he created me. He also created two final destinations for each person that has ever lived. One is called heaven. The other is called hell. One is good, one is not good. God also created that. So as we leave here today, I want you to be sure that when you walk out of this building that you know where you're going to end up because that's the only two choices and you get to make them. You get to make the choice of where you are going to spend eternity. And I hope and pray that you've made the choice to spend it in heaven with Jesus by responding to what he did on Calvary's cross. If you've not done that, please come as we stand and sing this invitation song.
Just a couple of quick announcements.